This is Scott Sebring, and you are listening to the Retro Cool Nerd Palcast. It's good listening. Trust me. Meanwhile, just outside of Gotham City. Bat antenna deployed. Atomic microphones power. Bat check. One, two. Testing. Bat computer online. And processing. Affirmative. Audio tapes to speed. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Roger. Ready to podcast. Transmitting. Greetings, citizens of Gotham, and welcome to the Retro Cool Nerd Podcast, bringing you a retro look at all things cool and a little nerdy, mostly through the lens of the 66 Batman TV show. I am the Retro Cool Nerd, Jimmy the Gent, broadcasting from my secluded study located deep within Stately Wayne Manor. And if you followed me over here from the Saturday Morning Serial Podcast, which I also co-host, welcome! I hope you enjoy what we got to offer. I want to say thank you for your patience, and in some small ways, it has been rewarded with a new episode. Lockdown and at-home schooling has set us back a little bit here, but I am working hard to bring you lots of groovy content on a regular basis with more conversations with the experts from the 66 Batman universe. This time around, we are discussing possibly the most beautiful, sultry villainous the dynamic duo has ever faced, Joan Collins as The Siren. We also have another segment of Hollywood History with Donald Dadigan from the Hollywood Museum. But before we get to the show, I want to thank everybody that tuned into our last episode. Even more listeners than last time. I am genuinely humbled once again. I want to say thanks to at John Wiesman for messaging me to say, quote, your first two shows were very funny and educational. I especially enjoyed your talk with Scott Sebring, and I'm looking forward to your future guests. End quote. Yes, John, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I plan on having Scott back real soon. For those of you listeners like at Bespin2006 that keep asking me for more Hollywood history with Donnell, today's your lucky day. My co-host from Saturday Morning Serial, Dan the Grim Shade, joins me as we learn more vintage Hollywood secrets from Donnell in another episode of Hollywood History. Well, something I thought I might have to address, and as I predicted last episode, somebody did notice and reached out. And a fan emailed me and asked me if the bat poles were really as big as Burt Ward mentioned. I believe he said they were 65 feet tall. Now, first of all, I'm here to engage in uh, conversations, not push back with any hard-hitting journalism questions, so I accept any answers at face value. So when Bert said it was 65 feet, it was 65 feet. To me. That being said, during a different conversation, Bert told me that they were 85 feet tall. And he could have said they were 100 feet tall, and I would not have blinked. It's his story to tell, and he can tell it any way he wants to. But fans demanded more. Over at the Batman 66 message board, Ben Bentley put together quite a good argument for the height of the actual bat poles, where he dissects the case in detail, provided blueprints of the building, pictures from the set, and used Adam for scale to approximately measure the poles. The short story is, stage 16, where the Batcave set was built, 
was only 46 feet high. Schematics and blueprints for the set show the rock face covering to the bat poles to be 28 feet 6 inches high. So most likely, a 25 to 30 foot drop is what we had. Maybe 35 feet at the tops. But like I said, it's Bert's story to tell, and when he, when he tells it, he can make it as big as he wants. I will leave the link in the description if you're interested in the full breakdown in the Batman 66 message board. Now this episode, we're going to narrow the focus of our conversation a little bit to the one villain from the show that has a superpower and explore not only the original script for the season three, episode three, Whale of the Siren, but the original treatment for the episode, what was lost and how they may have done it on a season three budget. But first, let's cover a few Siren facts. The Siren was portrayed by the lovely Joan Collins, who would later gain fame as Alexis Carrington on Dynasty. The Siren's real name was Lorelai Cersei, who was a chanteuse, able to sing seven octaves. She could use her voice to sing a high note, which would put any man who heard it under her spell. Batman and Robin, you're finished, I say. For hidden inside of your car. Commissioner Gordon is lurking, and soon he'll tell me whoever you are. She had a fascination with evil and historical women who fit that description, such as Matahari, Lucrezia Borgia, and Lady Macbeth. She dismissively referred to the other female criminals in Gotham, such as Catwoman and Black Widow, as amateurs. She appeared in two consecutive episodes of the Batman TV show, first in Ring Around the Riddler, where she collaborated with the Riddler in a plot to control all the boxing matches. There she mentioned that she also had plans for Batman. She then appeared in The Whale of the Siren, where she used her powerful voice to sing two octaves above high C and hypnotize both Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara. She would later put Bruce Wayne under her spell with plans to have him jump off of the top of his office building after he signed over the Wayne fortune to the Siren. The Siren also had a cameo on the Batman the Brave and the Bold episode, Day of the Dark Knight, trying to escape from Iron Heights Penitentiary, and also in the Batman 66 comic book. As I said, the Siren had the ability to memorize any man to do her bidding by singing a high note two octaves, two octaves above high C with her voice. Women, for some reason, are apparently not affected by this, and earplugs or headphones worked as a good defense. When Robin forced her to sing the antidote note three octaves above high C, Bruce snapped out of her control, but the Siren lost her voice. While under the siren spell, Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara did not remember their actions, but they never addressed how Commissioner Gordon or Chief O'Hara were freed from her spell. That's kind of a small plot hole, but there are many in the series. But you guys already probably knew that, so let's dig a little deeper. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we've got experts. Speaking of experts, this week I am joined by the man that knows more about the siren than most men know about their wives the world's foremost siren expert, J.P. Pelsman. 
Some listeners may know him as High C on the Batman 66 message board. By day, JP is a sports journalist writing for Forbes.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at JP Pelsman. That's at J-P-P-E-L-Z-M-A-N. But why has JP chosen Joan Collins, a.k.a. The Siren, as his way into the Batman 66 fandom? Is it the costume? The singing of the note two octaves above high C? JP answers these questions and many more as I get absolutely schooled about the siren, Joan Collins, in my latest Bat Chat with J.P. Pelsman. But, you know, J.P., is, is to my knowledge, you are the world's foremost expert on Joan Collins and the siren. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if, if, if anybody out there is listening would like to challenge your title, I, I welcome them too, but... Um, to for pound for pound, if anybody has any questions about the siren, you're the guy to go to. So I want to start off our conversation by you know talking about first of all why would you you know bat, a lot of bat fans want to uh, separate themselves by picking you know a deep dive character and, and focusing on that. So why would Joan Collins be the one? Why would the siren be your favorite? Your focus? Well, well, Jimmy, I guess I know. I guess a lot of Young uh, males growing up probably uh, gravitated toward Batgirl or Catwoman. I guess for me, the siren, uh, I just remember at that uh, impressionable age, uh, having watching that episode in syndication, her solo episode, not so much the, the one that she did with, uh, with Frank, but mm-hmm. her solo episode. I was really, I have to say, I was kind of blown away by it. I mean, just her presence. And just the idea, I'm sure I probably by then, I think the first time I, re- the first time I really remember seeing it, I was just shy of 14 years old. I don't know if I'd read uh, Homer's The Odyssey. don't know if I knew what a siren was at that point. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I, I certainly knew that uh, she was very interesting, and, uh, very sexy, and uh, uh, somebody that I'm not sure... Uh, I wasn't sure if I wanted to meet her or if I wanted not to meet her, if that makes any sense. Sure. Uh, but certainly had a presence and uh, just very sexy, as I said, very very mysterious, too. I just thought, and, and again, I admit, I'm, I'm one of the ones that I like uh, evil villainesses. I really don't go for the jocular Catwoman as much as I, I mean, I love the first season Catwoman. Mm-hmm. I thought... I mean, when she not conks the henchman over the head so she can have all the uh, all the loot for herself, I love that scene. I mean, it's just so it, to me, it's so iconic. And uh, the fact that she doesn't want a relationship with Batman, she just wants to tell Bruce Wayne to <laughs> jump off a building. I mean, it's nasty. But uh, in the context of Batman, especially when in season three, let's face it, it was kind of uh, de- devolving into. Uh, a sitcom, I think it's 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 kind of nice to see it at least have that season one noir feel. Right, um, right, right. And also, she's got that thing again, going back to season one, Jimmy, of of her mission is to try to find out who are Batman and Robin, and that strikes that's that's very comic book bookish, mm-hmm. very superheroish. Hey, who are these guys? I want to find that out first, and I like that aspect of it. And you know what? I'll tell you a real quick story. I mean, I, 
don't know if you're how big a baseball fan you are, but big enough to let you go on with your story. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I bat left hand and I throw right handed. Unfortunately, that's a great combination baseball, but I wasn't good enough to to, to play. But I guess that means I'm a little off center, so. That's why I just gravitated to somebody a little different. And I just think it's too bad they didn't – she couldn't have had, number one, a two-parter. I know they weren't doling out a lot of two-parters in the third season. Mm-hmm. And also just more more time to establish the character because I think it was a different character than most. I think they did the right casting. And I would like to have seen how they could have developed the character. I think much like Bookworm in season one, I would like to have seen Siren uh, – Come back for an encore performance. Yeah, um, she's I, that episode in the third season. I think is uh, one of the better episodes. Although I, I you know, as we've discussed uh, in various forums and on this show before, uh, you know, it's still like pizza. You know, even a bad episode of Batman is still a Batman, so it's yeah. kind of good, right? Yeah. So, but the uh, you know, as we've discussed, the third season tapers off a little bit, but that. But her episode, which I think is the second storyline, third episode, right? Correct. All right, is one of the better ones. It's well written. She's got, like you said, she has a defined um, objective in mind, and this is just before the. There's still a little money on on the set with the uh, set decoration, uh, but you can kind of see where it's going with the with the uh, blackout curtains and behind everything, behind all the mock-ups, right? Uh, but which works in her scenario, which is loosely should be uh, underwater, right? Correct. Yeah, and yeah. and and they certainly spent some money on her costume. I mean that mm-hmm. that certainly wasn't off the rack. I mean it fit her. I think we would all agree it fit her pretty well, mm-hmm. and that was pretty uh, somewhat risque even by 1967 standards, or even by today's standards. I mean, and and so they spent some money on that. In fact, I I know from the product from the uh, budget report. It made the uh, the budget went over for the Ring Around the Riddler episode uh, because because of that most likely because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just uh, I give her credit. I think I think she took it seriously. I think to me that's one villain you couldn't play it too campy because the character's over the top to begin with. Let's face it; it's really the only. Batman character in the series where they had some kind of a, a superpower, or if you want to use the Marvel term, a, a metahuman. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you then play that over the top, it's really out there. So you have to ground it a little bit. So I, I think she, uh, Joan Collins, gave it the right touch, the right, uh, the right tone for the character. Where was I? Know you get a little uh, verklempt when certain authors mentioned that she was a virtual nobody uh, when she came around to uh, Batman and the Siren. But Joan had a little bit of a body of work going on right then. This would have been 67, right? 19 and 67. Correct. What Correct. what else Very did she... Much. Go ahead. Very much so, yeah. No, well, yeah, thanks for mentioning Because she she had been, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a sexist term nowadays, but they, would, they called it a starlet back then. She was... She was signed to Fox for, for for a good deal of money back then in the 50s. Actually, she started very early. She she started when she was 20 in British films for, believe it or not, a, a big filmmaker, film company in Britain 
it was called the Rank Company, uh, which I, you know, I can hear the, the, the snickering now, but uh, mm-hmm. they, they were one of the bigger film companies in England. But she eventually wound up doing films. First, she did a picture. Her first big American picture was, was directed by a guy named, very famous director named Howard Hawks. She actually replaced somebody early in filming that he had fired. And it was called Land of the Pharaohs. And that was really kind of her first uh, femme fatale role. She's this, uh, the funny thing is, again, she's playing, she's supposed to be playing a woman from Cyprus. I mean, uh, you know, that's kind of like D. Hartford playing uh, Miss Iceland. I mean, mm-hmm. she's not doing any kind of accent either, but <laughs> they did kind of make her up with a lot of bronzer. But the, the, the thing is that she's supposed to be given to some Egyptian pharaoh as kind of a... Uh, as a gift, if you will. Uh, and But she winds up kind of scheming to make herself his number one wife and, and, and pretty much bumps off his other wife. And she winds up being killed herself. She gets sealed in the tomb. But really, she gives a good performance. It is kind of campy, Jimmy, but it's her first real femme fatale role. And she's really all of 21 or 22 when they're filming. And it's a lot of it's a lot of responsibility. I think she, she pulls it off pretty well. And that was what the impetus for Fox to sign her. And then she had a, a number of roles for Fox over, over several years. The biggest role for Fox that she did was a, a femme fatale. She was a co- comic femme fatale in a film called Rally Around the Flag Boys, where she's this suburban woman who's trying to uh, seduce Paul Newman away from his happy household with his on-screen and off-screen wife, Joanne Woodward. She does fail there. Uh, she also did a movie. She was loaned out, as they said, in the business to MGM for a movie called The Opposite Sex, where coincidentally her character is named Crystal, hmm. and she's trying to uh, steal uh, uh, Leslie Nielsen, of all people, away from his girlfriend. And finally, in a movie you may have seen, she's in the, the last of the road pictures with Hope and Crosby, The Road to Hong Kong. She's basically Robert Morley's henchmall in that movie. This was 1960. It was filmed in 61. It came out in 62. And where does uh, Star Trek fall into that timeline? Well, that, well, what happens then is after that movie, she kind of took a hiatus which a lot of actresses did back then was, I mean, she, she wanted to start a family. She, she had two children, uh, a daughter, Tara, in, in 1963, and a boy, Sasha, in 1965 with Anthony Newley, uh, the famous singer, songwriter, actor who she had married. And so she, she kind of gets dips her toe back in the water, but by then she's really not in films anymore. So in 66... She, she starts getting back into it. She's in a, a series called, in September 66, she's in a Man from Uncle episode. She's in a show called Run for Your Life with Ben Gazzara. And then in February 1967, she shot, and it appeared, it ran in April 67, the famed Star Trek episode, City on the Edge of Forever, where Captain Kirk falls in love with her character, but he's forced to sacrifice her because it's not the... Uh, Nazis would have won World War II, and that that is is considered a role that uh, 
people still talk about to this day the fact that uh, she really could play a good girl very convincingly. And uh, that I, I don't know if that got her on the radar for the Batman appearance, but uh, it couldn't have hurt, let's put it that way. Sure. Um, and so, quote, um, virtual nobody, end quote, is is highly overrated. I mean, yeah, she had well, quite yeah. a body of work, and you could say she was a, very much an up-and-comer. Well, well, she was she was certainly in demand on the guest star circuit. I mean, mm-hmm. she she. Uh, I think the thing was, I mean, she only, she only took a certain amount of roles because obviously she had a prominent English accent. You couldn't cast her as the girl next door unless next door was Buckingham Palace. <laughs> but you know, she she had a name, she had a reputation, and she still was at least on TV was was a name. And in fact, the funny thing is, the day before Whale the Siren aired. Uh, she appeared uh, another meaty guest star role, another lead guest star role. And, and mind you, these are all lead guest star roles. None of these are, are back of the credits roles. These are all right. top guest star roles. Uh, she appeared the night before Whale the Siren appear, uh, uh, aired. She appeared on uh, Batman's former competition, The Virginian, on September 27, 1967, uh, playing a, a saloon owner in Wichita, Kansas, who moves to Wyoming when she's uh, bequeathed a ranch. Now, I don't know. Uh, I've never been to Wichita, but I can't imagine uh, many women in Wichita speak uh, like Joan Collins, but that's just a guess. Right. Maybe she, yeah, she could have been a transfer, inherited it from somebody, won it in a poker game. It could have been. It could have been. And I know a lot of people, I know a lot of English people did migrate uh, to the U.S. in the 1800s, but still... uh, it was called the lady from Wichita. Again, uh, no offense to people in Wichita, but I just don't think I don't think they speak uh, they speak like they were born in uh, London. That's just me. Mm-hmm. And then, so then, um, along comes Batman. Yes, I, 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 that is one thing I, I still would love to know. It's unfortunate that the one thing, if you for the most part, it. it there's no correspondence, unfortunately, because I've certainly delved into this, Jimmy, to try to find out if he corresponded with, with her management. She was, at the time, rep by a, by a boutique agency uh, called the uh, CMA, Creative Management uh, Agency. And because she didn't have, I mean, obviously, her husband at the time, he was making tons of money. I mean, it was just, it wouldn't keep going like that because he was about to be in one of the colossal flops of the 1960s called Dr. Doolittle. But but then he would go on to a great career. He would still have his nightclub act. He was certainly in demand. But she didn't have to act all the time. But I just don't have never found any paperwork from Dozier of how he got in touch with her or anything like that. I mean, obviously it was maybe just a phone call to her agent at the time. That's the unfortunate thing. Uh, obviously some businesses are done by the via phone. So I don't have anything to figure out how Doja contacted her, how she got on his radar. Because let's face it, that's the other thing. She was 34 at the time, and he, he did did tend to skew older, even with even with female villains, even with female villains. I mean, just look at uh, Tallulah Bankhead. But uh, hey, he did find Julian. Obviously, she's she's uh, the same age as Joan. They're, mm-hmm. they're both still around, still with us, thank goodness. So. You know who knows who knows how they got in touch, but 
Maybe they were looking at her for the Londinium episodes because of her accent. That's a a good question. That's a good question. And they said, you know what? You need your own show. You need your own episode. Maybe, yeah. Who knows? That's a good. That's a good question. Uh, And and that that's, you know, I do have. I do have. I can tell you this though. I have all the paperwork from the episode. Mm -hmm. I have all the scripts. I have all the shooting schedules. I have all the budgets. And uh, I also think I will say this though. One thing I think, I, she did have to do the walk-on in the in the in the Riddler episode, so maybe that helped the fact that maybe somebody with a bit bigger name at the time wouldn't have wanted to do that because that was a little less money for for uh, I mean for a day and a half of work. Right. This is a fun yeah. This is a fun thing though. The, the second day she worked the second she worked the last two days of the Riddler shoot. And the funny thing about that was it must have taken so long to put that wig on her, Jimmy, that she had a 12.30 p.m. report to the set and a 3 p.m. on-set call. I guess that's how much time they were allowing mm-hmm. to, uh, I don't know, to fit the wardrobe too maybe, but to fit that, that gown. But also they weren't taking any chances of how long it might take to put that wig on her. Well, yeah, and makeup, right? So And makeup too, yeah. and makeup too. And she... She said in her book that uh, that the wig was so so heavy that she she came home each day with a, with a with a bad migraine from carrying it around all day. Does she? You know, again, I'll probably bring this up more than once while we're talking. But you are the expert, so I'm, I want to ask you: Do you know? Did she reflect fondly on that character, and does she talk about the siren at all in her book? Do you know if she had maybe photographs around her house or she, anything? She. She unfortunately, I, I don't know how how she she actually did unfortunately call the character ludicrous, mm-hmm. which which I give her credit though because she gave it her all. I mean, I think the one I don't know how fondly she reflected on it. I mean, she later on said uh, that the children enjoyed being on set. I'm sure they enjoyed meeting Adam. I would assume, and. She did say, you know, that Adam by that point was kind of frustrated because even though this was only the sec, these were only the second and third episodes aired, they were the seventh and eighth episodes shot, and and she did say that Adam was kind of getting frustrated with the way the scripts were, and, and maybe Adam could see the writing on the wall that uh, the show was not long for the for the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I thought that was interesting and. And Adam said in his book uh, that the director, George Wagner, who was an old-time director who directed monster movies and westerns and stuff like that back in the day, and also directed Otto Preminger's arc, mm-hmm. that he, for some reason, really berated her mercilessly and that Adam had to uh, console her between takes. Oh. He's a good guy on and off set. But, yeah, uh, like you said, she mentioned that he kind of saw the writing on the wall and was worried about his post-Batman career? Correct, yeah. He was he was worried very much about being typecast. Mm-hmm. And she, she said in her book that uh, at the time she didn't know what he meant, but then she realized that years later that after Dynasty she was pretty much typecast uh, as being uh, the, uh, the bitch. B-I-T-C-H, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, me to say it, but yeah, that she was just getting those 
just super bitch roles after Dynasty. So she she said she really didn't understand it in 1967, but 25 years later, she she knew exactly what he meant. Let's talk about I I I would call it a tag these days. What would you call that that end cap or that bookend that she appeared in at the end of the Riddler? Yeah, I mean it was kind of it was kind of yeah, it, 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 I guess connected tissue maybe. Yeah, like a teaser I mean, maybe. It was it was yeah it was both it was a tag and a teaser because it really just it was it was interesting because it's really the one time that they they tied the two episodes together in that they introduced her in the middle of the episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That I mean, there's no way you can really not run those two episodes back to back in syndication. Right. You really, you really have it's to run. It's almost back a three parter. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really doesn't doesn't work if you don't run those back to back. So it's 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 kind of interesting to me how they how they set that up. The problem though is is let's face it, it's kind of shoehorned into that Riddler episode. I mean, if he's if he's got this this. Uh, drug that he's giving the boxes why does he need siren it really mm-hmm. doesn't make a whole bunch of sense other than the fact that they want to introduce the character again i'm not complaining about seeing joan more but, sure uh, and and you and possibly you know use her name like you said this was the seventh one shot seventh episode shot, correct. and the first one aired so they want to get the riddler frank gorshin in there and get that name for you know the premiere of season three and then also a little bit of a little smattering of her star blossoming yeah, well, star think, power. Well, I think also let's face it. I think they wanted to get they wanted to get. Uh, I'm just going to be honest. I think they wanted to get a sex symbol in there. Yeah, I get some ratings. Qualified as a sex symbol. They knew they knew at this point they weren't going to have Julie Newmore around anymore. I think that that die had been cast by then. Mm-hmm. They, they knew she wasn't doing the show anymore. I mean, I mean, people don't realize by then. She had already signed on to do a movie in Europe called um, Monsieur Lecoq uh, <laughs> that was never never completed. And it was Zero Mostel, I believe. Mm-hmm. And she was, I think she was trying to actually get out of the Catwoman typecast, to be honest with you, although we'll never know. And I said, I don't blame her. She's not going to say that. Right. You don't want to disappoint the fans, but... But anyway, I just think they wanted to. I mean, I'm not here to talk about Catwoman. I get that, but <laughs> I, I sorry tangent. But I think they wanted to get. Let's face it, they want to get. I mean, there's no question. Uh, you know that that show was also trying to appeal. That's why they signed Yvonne. They were right. trying to appeal to the upper male demographic, which I think they felt they had kind of, uh, even with all of Julie's appearances in season two, they felt was was not doing well that male dem- that whatever, 18 to 49 or whatever, male demographic wasn't doing all that great. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she was really the only one. So now in season three, we've got Batgirl, especially in the premiere, we've got Batgirl and Joan Collins in a pretty hot uh, silver miniskirt. Uh, although Batgirl's not allowed to be overtly sexual or even a little sexual, as I recall. Um, <clears throat> uh, they want to up that, like you said, the, the younger... Me- male viewers, the older male viewers, or maybe just male viewers in general? Yeah, I, I think they were definitely going for that. I mean, uh, I mean, that's, Yvonne has said that. I mean, Yvonne said that when she was asked about it, that they were, they were looking for older male viewers when they hired her and, and, uh, younger, and, and the young, young female viewers. 
Mm-hmm. And as she said that when she made appearances, you, you know, uh, adolescent girls would come up to her and, and want her autograph. So mm-hmm. they certainly were spot on with that, that they wanted a role model they could look up to, that they wanted someone they could identify with. Uh, it's just unfortunate. The unfortunate thing is that by putting the episode up, speaking of Batgirl, by putting the episode up so so quickly as the third episode of the new season, uh, they wound up cutting out one of Joan's scenes, which was shot, to to, to throw in that, uh, and it's had nothing to do with Yvonne, throwing in that awful Batgirl scene. So. Right, so they could, uh, yeah, I've heard you talk about that before, so that they, so probably presumably so Dozier could get so his his money from get that theme song. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and that and that unfortunately falls under you know just show business the business that is show right. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, could you throw that in the I don't know maybe the endless egghead Olga episode you know trilogy <laughs> three parter or two parter that you you three parter that you mash into a two and a one or or even Londinium where nothing happens for three parts I mean because uh, that well you know it's it's an interest I think it's an interesting story your your listeners can determine it. Could this be the end of our episode? Is JP under the siren's spell? What is it about the sultry songtress that makes a man devote his free time to a TV show that is over 50 years old? Tune in after the break. Same POW channel. Same POW cast. This is an ABC color presentation. Don't forget to join us right here every three or four or five-ish weeks or so for Saturday Morning Serial, the podcast that explores the themes of Saturday morning TV, which not only did we all grow up with, they've also been growing up with us. So join Dan Grimshay, Marky, Jimmy the Gent Lazinski, and Johnny Heck, plus a whole host of celebrity guests, cameos, and recipe tips. Viewer discretion is advised because we do sometimes say fuck and fuck and shit and what the fuck. Saturday morning cereal. See you soon. After these messages, we'll be right back. Um, I can't find the sugar. Welcome back to another installment of Hollywood History with Donnell Dadigan. Donnell is the owner and curator of the Hollywood Museum, located on the corner of Highland and Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. I have to say, we had a surprising amount of feedback from our chat with Donnell last time, so I was excited to have her back to share some more secrets about Tinseltown. And once again, the delightful Donnell does not disappoint. Hopping in on this conversation is my friend and co-host from the Saturday Morning Serial, Dan the Grim Shea. So let's just throw it to the three of us in the studio now. The first time that I was at the museum was for the Batman 66 exhibit, the Holy Hollywood History Batman, the 1966 exhibit. That's a mouthful of a name. And uh, so I've... 
we shared pictures on the website before, and one of the questions I get a lot about that I wanted to make sure that I asked you was how the exhibit was up on the third floor, and you have uh, just a one kind of freight elevator, but the everybody wanted to know how did you get the Batmobile up to the third floor, and and now you have a uh, DeLorean, right? A time machine from the Back to the Future. Yeah, so, well, those fly. Well, that, I guess oh, that one's yeah, a little here, right, Dan? Yeah, but the Batmobile, I'm <laughs> curious. But can, can you reveal some of the DeLorean. secrets of the museum? Well, yes. So for the DeLorean, the time machine, of course, we just opened a window and the DeLorean <laughs> flew in. And uh, no. <laughs> but um, uh, I do, I do, uh, it's amazing. The building is a solid port in place concrete building reinforced with steel. And uh, it was originally built as a Hollywood fire and safe building in the teens. And uh, so it withstood quite a, bit, uh, quite a bit of weight. And the top floor was used to store automobiles. Oh. Uh, and uh, the folks like uh, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Rudolph Valentino would store their 12 and 16 cylinder cars, these great, gigantic huge cars they would store them in the building while they were on tour uh, for the latest film or while they may have been on location and uh, so knowing that I was just enthralled because the freight elevator holds 13,000 pounds so we could put all cars I've had Marilyn Monroe's limousine on that uh, elevator uh, taken to the second floor where we had a phenomenal Marilyn Monroe exhibit, uh, which we do have every summer uh, in honor of her birthday and her passing to commemorate these two very important dates for her. But getting back to what you asked, uh, yes, the Batmobile uh, was driven into the elevator and it was raised up to the third floor. It's still on the third floor today, along with the DeLorean from part three. That's the hero car from part three. We have a DeLorean uh, that was featured in part one. And, of course, we have Marty McFly's black truck, pickup truck. And the, so we a, have right now four cars on that floor. That is uh, – I'm kind of uh, taken aback by that. I wasn't expecting that little piece of history that that was a, a bit of a – was it a secret garage for the Hollywood elite back in the – Back in the early days of Tinseltown, and uh, well, you know, I don't. Yeah, I, it's interesting that you asked that, Jim. I'm not sure that it was a secret garage, but it certainly was a location where valuables were stored. Uh-huh. And I guess if the elite could afford to put their cars there, or maybe that we could say that. Oh uh, yeah, uh, I, I, but, uh, but it, it was quite. The the building was originally the Hollywood Fire and Safety. Board building? It was built for the Hollywood Fire and Safe Company, and it was a storage facility, uh, but a high-end storage facility with lots of safety precautions taken in place. And what Max Factor loved about this is that uh, the building couldn't be burnt down. Uh, mm-hmm. And it turned out that years ago, when he first started this makeup business, uh, interestingly enough, they used explosive charges to mix colors into the powder products that he uh, sold. 
And well, so feels like uh, he needed, you know, it, it's a little bit of history, you know, when you think about it. So uh -huh. he loved the fact that it was a poured in place, solid concrete building and fireproof. And that's what the, um, uh, the storage facility advertised. It was a fireproof building. Huh. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Uh, and that, and then Max Factor took it from there and made it the, the foundation of the that we talked about. That Correct. that that's that part made it onto the show last time. How you well, the part where you bought it, and we talked about uh, you restoring it and all the time and effort you put into that. But I so I I did want to circle back to the Marilyn Monroe exhibit. Uh -huh. you, put, you put that up. You said on the her birthday and her the date of her passing? Yes, so Marilyn Monroe, you know, she is the most popular female actress in the world, has been, is, and most likely will continue to be. And so we always open the exhibit annually uh, on her birthday, June 1st, and it goes through the summer months, and we do a special celebration uh, for the anniversary of her passing, on August 5th, and uh, we have so many visitors from so many Marilyn Monroe fan clubs from around the world that come to pay homage to this great Hollywood icon. And they love to come and see whether it's we're displaying a personal piece of furniture, or one of her hand mirrors, a costume from one of her movies, uh, her shoes. People are always interested to know what shoe size was she really? What dress size was she really? Uh -huh. uh, you know, all of these things. And, um, you know, uh, makeup that was used uh, during uh, her time, whether it was personal makeup or makeup from uh, the many films she appeared in. And um, one of her makeup artists, her personal makeup artist, uh, became a friend of the museum. And uh, sadly, he passed away. But uh, we received a lot of makeup from him that he had saved that uh, he said that she had touched and he had used on her. So, you know, it's always fun to think about it's not only the exhibits not only have the typical photographs that you see uh, throughout the world or in fan magazines from once upon a time. We have those uh, the posters from her films, uh, iconic photographs of her. Uh, whether it was her singing Happy Birthday, Mr. President, or even photographs with her with John F. Kennedy, uh, photographs from films, uh, uh, backstory photographs, you know, uh, when the cameras weren't rolling on stage. But it's these items and artifacts that you could find only from people who worked with her on a personal basis or from her personal home collection inside her home that made it to the auction house. And that's always very interesting because uh, most of these artifacts were put in storage uh, by the Strasburg family because everything was left to the Strasburg family. Lee Strasburg was her acting coach and uh, she left everything to him. And the family, he passed away, uh, of course, after she passed away. Uh, but the family decided to auction everything off 36 years after her passing because Marilyn Monroe lived for 36 years. Uh -huh. And so they waited until uh, many of these artifacts 
came to pass. And one of the costumes that we have, well, actually, it's a personal gown that we have that she appeared in the USO show uh, in Korea. When we received it, I have to tell you, we opened the box and the fragrance of Chanel Number no. 5, which was her favorite perfume, the, the fragrance just came wafting out of the box and just permeated the room. And I have to tell you that that dress, uh, I don't know how they shipped it, but it came to the museum with an armed guard. Oh. <laughs> and of course, we had to sign for it and everything, but they wanted to take no chances. Right, yeah. Um, did So do you own some of those pieces, or do they belong to the, the museum? The The... The display seems kind of rotates a little bit. I I notice it, it has sometimes it, the objects in it that are, varies from time to time. Yes. So the uh, the Marilyn Monroe exhibit there is a Marilyn Monroe exhibit at the museum at all times. Right. It grows in size and shrinks in size depending during the time of the year. I see. And um, uh, I am thrilled to say that the museum is comprised of. The museum's uh, the exhibit is comprised of the museum's collection, fans from all over the world, major Marilyn Monroe collectors. Uh, it's uh, an amalgamation of so many different uh, groups uh, of diverse individuals and organizations that enjoy participating. So, uh, but I will it... say, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go on. I was just going to say it, it's fair to say that people contact you and say, I've got this really great Marilyn Monroe piece. Do you have room for it for the birthday exhibit or for the um, passing exhibit? Or do you or do you yeah. seek them out when you see something that you have to have? Do you more seek them out to display it in your museum? Well, you know, Jim, that's a great question because I think it's a combination of both. And of course, we have to vet the uh, individual or the organization. And then, of course, the artifact, we definitely have to vet. And we're so thankful we have so many professionals uh, that work with the museum to make sure that we're always showing authentic, real artifacts at the museum. Do you, uh, do you have anything on your wish list right now? Oh, everything. But I will, <laughs> I will tell you. And I suppose if somebody looks it up, they can find it out. At one point in time, there was a Marilyn Monroe exhibit about 15 years ago. And um, we decided this sounded really very interesting. And so it came out from the Midwest. And I took one look at it and wasn't so sure. I had the uh, folks from LACMA, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and their textile division take a look at the clothing element of it. And we found it uh, that with the clothing element, certain parts of it uh, couldn't be because in the 19, early 1960s, they didn't have uh, plastic zippers. And bugle beads were not made with a certain type of material yet. Oh. Uh, so interesting what you can find. And um, 
we had the honorary mayor of Hollywood, Johnny Grant, who was my best friend in Hollywood until his passing and uh, in uh, 2008. But we had him look because he was personal friends with Joe DiMaggio. And he remembered some wonderful uh, times that uh, he shared with Joe uh, when Joe was married to Marilyn Monroe. And so I said, I need for you to look at all of this because uh, there was a fishing tackle box that belonged to Joe DiMaggio and a bathrobe and a pair of slippers. And I don't know if your uh, listeners know it or not, but Johnny Grant was the Army Mayor of Hollywood, knew everything about Hollywood, uh, presided over the Walk of Fame star ceremonies until his passing. And he did 69 or 71, depending on whose number you want to accept, of the USO shows overseas. And he, uh, his mentor was Bob Hope, of course, because of the USO shows. He learned quite a bit from Bob and also Gene Autry, the cowboy who landed up owning the Angels baseball team. Mm-mm. And uh, I was uh, so surprised when I showed Johnny Grant this fishing tackle box, and there was a Marilyn Monroe ID card also from the USO show. And so regarding Joe DiMaggio and the fishing tackle box, he looked at that box and he said, Joe got to the point in his life where everything had to be first class. You see this tackle box? There's nothing first class about this. Organized is of good quality in this box, whether it's a fishing line or a lure or a hook, nothing, nothing, nothing. And my nickname is my initials, Didi. And he said, Didi, he said, I don't see it. So then I showed him the bathrobe and he said, oh, he said, he would never wear something like this. This is what you get in a motel when you go to somewhere maybe in the desert and they have a bathrobe for you and those slippers, well, those are cheap slippers that they provide to you. And, uh, and so he said, this is impossible. This would have never been Joe DiMaggio's. He really liked elegant quality clothing. And in fact, all of his suits were custom made. His shirts were custom made. He said he would never keep anything like this as his own. Maybe he'd wear it if he went to that motel, but he would never keep it for his own. So I was like, oh, my God, you know, my heart just dropped. And then, Jim, I said to him, well, I have this USO ID of Marilyn Monroe's. You know, Johnny, you have 6971 of these USO uh, ID certificates. I said, I need for you to take a look at this and tell me, is this accurate? And so he looks at it and he says, oh. He said, 1953, 1954. Hmm. He said, you know, he said, this USOID is laminated. I said, yeah. He says, do you think there was such a thing as lamination in the early 50s? I said, I don't know. He said, no way. He said, this is a copy of her real one. He said, which many books carried a photograph of her USOID. And he says, this is a copy. He says, it's not real. So 
getting it's a long way around to tell you that yes we receive all sorts of artifacts uh, but we have to vet them properly and sadly this entire exhibit had to be packed up because it didn't make sense to us it was uh, and we knew that it was not authentic later on when it was displayed elsewhere there was a set of electric hair curlers uh, and the I believe it was the trademark and copyright and the um, actual uh, number of that item uh, was traced back to hair curlers from 1965. That's too what late. year did Marilyn Monroe die? 1962. <laughs> yeah. So there was a problem. But luckily, we didn't. We never put the exhibit on display. But you know, sometimes you learn the hard way, and uh, you know, uh, it, it's uh, it's amazing what you can find. Every day is like a treasure hunt when we meet with collectors and you know different folks from the film industry, from television, and from new digital projects. You know that have your favorite stars and the uh, clothing and the artifacts. It's so much fun. You know, you never know what you're going to find. It's truly a treasure hunt. Uh, it, it sounds like you found my robe and slippers at one point. Yeah, I really dig that, uh, that detective work that you do at vetting all the, the items. Like I, I was very familiar well, yeah. with some of the work that went into the Batman pieces is, and checking them out, and a couple things didn't make it. Um, very so, Dan Brown. Well, you know, I, I have to tell you, Jim, uh, it's really interesting. And really, I think one of the strengths of the Hollywood Museum is that we have a great family of professionals uh, who know about this. You know, this type of vetting cannot only, and authentication cannot only rest on one person. Uh, you have to be able to call specialists in each of these genres uh, to be able to ask the questions and get responses that you can rely on. Of course, this isn't just my generosity. It's part of Canada Dry's million-dollar sweepstakes. I adore Canada Dry ginger ale. It's deliciously less sweet. And who wants to be sweet, anyway? So have a Canada Dry ginger ale while you're mulling over this momentous decision. Me or a million dollars. For details, see the Canada Dry Joan Collins sweepstakes display in supermarkets. What evil times are these? Will JP find an interesting story? Does Jimmy bring up the original teaser trailer script? Answers now! What got me to be the Batman collector was I actually happened to buy from an outlet once uh, a photo of, a, of Chevy Aberg in the bikini from the Surf's Up Joker's Under. Mm -hmm. and, and when I was thanking them, I said, let me know if you come up with any other stuff. And this is in 2000. And I promise you, I'll make this work for you. And so, <laughs> they, they, so I get an email a few weeks later, and they say, yeah, we came up with these contact sheets. I know, I know what a contact sheet was. And it was six contact sheets from Whale of the Siren, and there's it's 12, 12 photos on a, on a sheet. And, and they said, okay. And, and, and they offered them to me. And I said, sure. And I bought them 
the transaction off of eBay, and I see Joan in this. She's wearing this mini mesh dress and skirt, and I'm saying, but standing behind her are the henchmen, Allegro, played by Mike Mazurki, Andante, played by Cliff Osmond, and they're wearing their their outfits. They're wearing their henchmen outfits. I think myself, I know they didn't have dress rehearsals. I'm saying, what is this? So it didn't make any sense to me. And and so later on, when I when I was able to buy a copy of the script, I found out that this was a, a scene that was shot and deleted, where she's supposed Siren's supposed to be in her lair. She's just finished a concert as Lorelai Cersei, her alter ego, mm-hmm. and she's like she's taking off her makeup in front of a mirror, and she's discussing her next caper, which is to take Bruce Wayne's money, and she's discussing how she doesn't even want to sing anymore. She just wants to be evil. She just wants to be a criminal. And now, granted, I understand it's maybe more exposition you didn't need. I think it's also interesting that she's saying she could make money legitimately, but she doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting as opposed to all these villains who they really don't have any way to make money legitimately. This is what they do. They're criminals. This is someone like it's unfortunate that she does hypnotize Bruce and that this would be the perfect person for Batman to say, you know, I, I, mean, I can't do an Adam like Scott could do it. But, you know, with your, with your you know, with your talent, you could you could be such an asset to humanity, Siren. You know, give it up. You know, give up crime, you poor deluded creature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you could do so much good for the world. And instead, she just wants to be evil. But, and that's kind of what got me into the whole. So, inadvertently, those photos, that contact sheet got me into understanding that there's this whole world behind the scenes of scenes that were shot and never aired, and that there's scripts and all these other things in the Dozier files. So inadvertently, that kind of got me, Jimmy, into being a historian of the show. And not just obviously those episodes with Joan, but all the episodes to discover, hey, what what stuff happened that we don't know about that never appeared on screen? So it's funny in a way that that kind of was a gateway for me to just want to know more about the show and know as much as I could about the show. So I got I have two follow-up questions about that little scene. And this is deep sure. cut, so if you're only a casual fan of the 66 show, you might want to go make yourself a sandwich. But <laughs> but I want to know that, so that when does that scene in the script take place? Is this before she goes to, or, or in lieu of going to Commissioner Gordon's office and hypnotizing I, him? I should, have made, I, should have made that, I should have made that clear. You can see it on the aired episodes, basically when, when they come back from the middle break after, after Bruce and Dick... Ha- after Alfred has, has has sprayed Commissioner Gordon with bat sleep, and he brings he brings him up to the study, mm-hmm. and then they go to break, and Siren appears in her siren garb, and, and she's kind of primping herself. The reason she's primping herself is because originally it's like she's just changed back into Siren. She's just. Yeah, because she had right. been Laurel and Cersei. In, like, in, just got done in, with her concert, yeah. Yes, in a concert, in, in more normal clothes, and now all of a sudden she's reappearing 
as Siren. So that's why she's making an entrance and why Andante and Allegro are waiting for her. So, yeah, that, no, that's a good question. I should made it clear. So that, that scene would have been after she's uh, uh, playing the harp and saying how she will control Bruce Wayne's fortune and, and before she reemerges to make the phone call. Mm-hmm. And does that scene, have you, does that, I, I manage, maybe it does exist somewhere, but have you ever seen it on YouTube or in any collector's I don't think, vaults? I, I, I wish it existed somewhere. I doubt it does. That's why every time I hear about outtakes or something, I'm always hope, hoping, but I, I, unless it's buried deep in a fox vault somewhere, I, I have to think it's a bit the dust. And also, I should add, there's another I, I have to think this was filmed too, because otherwise, Jimmy, this makes no sense to me. I mean, that's think about this in 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 the uh, in the garage with Gordon. She's got a different hairstyle and a different different costume. Now, why right. are you going to have a different costume and a different hairstyle? Now, I know that's a different day, so they didn't restyle her hair. That was a different day, so it's day where they didn't bother put on the wig and everything. Okay, I get that, but still, you got a different costume. You've got a whole different costume for a scene that lasts about 30 seconds. And what happens there is that when Batman and Robin came back, they had a whole scene with Batman and Robin. Now, I can't confirm this one was shot. I don't know. But I'm guessing it was because why would you have a whole costume change for a 30-second scene? Now, there's a scene in the, in the final script where Batman and Robin come down to the, the garage and she confronts them. And she just make small talk with them. And the, the joke, the joke is supposed to be that Gordon's already in the, in the trunk and they don't know it. Mm-hmm. And, but it makes sense to me that that would have been shot because why would you, why would you just shoot a 30 second scene and have, it makes no sense to shoot a 30 second scene in the garage. I, I don't know. It just doesn't make, with the costume and everything. I, I just don't understand why you would do that. Right. I mean that like you said that's a lot of money uh just to have exactly. them on just to have them on stage whatever they're wearing that's money. And then if exactly. it's a completely separate outfit they did reuse a lot of costumes on that show. Uh so there I guess there's a small chance that that you know it's one of those. But she is kind of a uh Joan Collins is kind of a petite frame and might might need special accommodations as far as uh, the the wardrobe so yeah, yeah I mean, it's, yeah, it doesn't well, make well, like you said it doesn't make sense to put all that money out there and not have anything come out of it, other than you know maybe some on on set photos. And let's face it, neither one of those, neither one of those outfits were off the rack. Those weren't th- those those were specially done. Those mm-hmm. those were they spent money on those costumes, especially her silver one. Yeah, that uh, yeah, those, and both of those silver ones. Mm-hmm. What. Let's talk about the original. I think it's really interesting. Um, you sent me a copy of the uh, script for the original teaser that introduced uh, the siren. So it looks like they abandoned that so that they could jam her into uh, the middle of the of the Riddler episode. But but this teaser, the original teaser for her for the siren, uh, is very nautical in in theme and and. And starts off with uh, shots of boats on the rocks and somebody's following um, 
following a, a scream or something. You want to talk a little about? Tell me a little bit about that. Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, I think. Uh, thanks, Jimmy. I mean, I, I what surprised me about that. I don't know if it was a case of Stanley Ralph Ross kind of going rogue, if you will, or something, because I was just surprised what he wrote with what he wrote there. Because let's face it, I mean, I don't know if he he didn't get the memo that season three, maybe, maybe he didn't because let's face it, he's writing this in early June. Right. And right. maybe he didn't get the memo that, you know what, we, we've got no budget mm-hmm. because he's now granted boats crashing on the rocks. You could maybe get some stock footage. I get that. But now he's, he's definitely got a scene where Joan's going to be on the beach or at least on a hilltop. That's, I don't see how you can do that indoors. That's, right. That's 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 got to be shot outdoors. I don't understand. There's no way you can do that. He, he's got certainly a bunch of extras at least. I, I just don't understand what he's thinking. I mean, it's an interesting scene, and he's certainly thinking very literal, as I mentioned before with the old uh, ancient Greeks. He's thinking very literally about sirens making boats and ships crash on the rocks, mm-hmm. but. I, I just wonder, I mean, I, I'd like to get, you know, I, what, what was your thought when you read it as far as, I mean, what do you think of the budget? I feel it's much more interesting. Uh, uh, you know, what, like you sure. said, it's it's before there's any restrictions. So it's obviously a first draft be, because they cut it. But um, it, there's a lot more character development in this, what, what, two, three pages, right? Or how many pages is it yeah. maybe? About 10 pages. Yeah, but it's a lot of money for for that amount of yeah. time for that like you go from the water then you know we see the ships crashed on the rocks which you said maybe we got some stock footage of that and maybe they're trying to work in batman and the batman boat you know working the bat boat in there somewhere but they go right they to the hospital yeah. they go right to the hospital to talk to one of the victims of the crash that's a whole nother you know that's a whole nother set and a whole super amount of money you know? set, yep. <laughs> yeah. and then and then we're back to the sirens grotto but, uh, you know, that's all they've already had that, you know, so they just cut out all this, you know, couple thousand dollars worth of uh, pages here and get right to her in the grotto. Yeah. And, and I just I got to say this. Uh, tell you what, though, if that was if that was a Batman 66 movie and, and even if I weren't a Siren fan, I'd probably watch it. And her I mean, her theme or her. Um, Crime or motive is obviously different, right? She just wants to take over the world. Yeah, which I, I just, I mean, it doesn't make sense. I don't like the whole, uh, to, to, it, to it, explain it to people, her, her, her plot is that he, ha, he, my problem is he's, he's, it's kind of like what I said before about her performance not going over the top is that, Ross, in, 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 the, in the outline, if you will, what I call it, they call it a teaser. I call it an outline because obviously teaser already means something different when you watch the show. But mm-hmm. in his outline, her overall plot is she, that he, he, he has this device of something called the Winnetka Winds. I guess maybe you spent some time in Chicago or whatever. But, and that there's this super wind that comes around every 17 years and 
that she feels if she puts, if she broadcasts her stunning note from the top of this, the highest building in Gotham City and uses high, high amplitude sound equipment, the note will somehow carry around the world and put all the men in the world in her power. Right. And that's what, that's what, I mean, that's kind of interesting and, and some nice writing is that's why the boats were crashed on the rocks. She was, she reveals, it's revealed that she was taking pieces of the, her speaker that she needs to build. She yes, needs, yes. part of it is she needs to build the world's largest amplifier and loudspeaker. So she's, yeah. that, that's and, what and, was on the boats. Yeah. I like, I like the ambition of the plot. I mm-hmm. don't, mm-hmm. I'm not buying this the pseudoscience of the wind. I just feel like that's kind of, it's kind of, uh, putting something on top of uh, of, of like, her powers already. It's like a hat. It's like a hat on a hat. Hat on a hat, thank you. Yeah. Hat on a hat. And but I do like the ambition. Mm-hmm. It's like I've said many times, and I know it's a tangent, but it's still siren related siren related. Okay. Okay, not pronounce the word siren correctly. That's terrible. Uh but I mean, the, my biggest disappointment with the 66 comics is every time they introduced Siren, either she was just a pawn in somebody else's plot or she just had the most banal plot going. It's like she's got these powers. I mean, at least in his teaser, she was going for the big one. She was, she was swinging for the fences. Right. I mean, so I like that. I also like, and this is something you got to give Stanley Ralph Ross some credit. And again, he obviously... Again, again, Jimmy, this goes with what, not knowing about the budget. He didn't know about the Horwitz Dozier no martial arts edict because. Right. Yep. What's that? Oh, no, I was going to say, yeah, there's a fight scene in there where uh, Batgirl is getting loose. Yeah, he, he, and this was interesting too, and which also, and it also shows you how the, the hoops they had to go through in the actual episode to make Siren basically lose is. Siren has a much better plot in this plan in this one, where she just calls up Batman directly. She calls Batman. <laughs> she breaks into Commissioner Gordon's office after he's gone for the night, and just calls Batman directly on the red phone, and just hits him with her note, and then hits Robin with the note, and tells them to go jump off Gotham, Gotham City Bridge, and which makes a lot more sense than, you know, than her plot in the actual episode. Mm-hmm. And and his thing is that. Now, he has a lot of stupid Stanley Ralph Ross stuff where, uh, of course, Batman doesn't want to run any red lights on the way to the bridge because, you know, he's still civic responsibility. I guess that's funny. He's still civic responsibility, Batman, even though he's hypnotized. Right. And yeah. So I guess that's okay. But then, but then, of course, Batman and Robin can't, they can't figure out who should jump off first. And then. Yeah, and that's then kind of weird, right? If they have to flip a coin. That's kind of, see, that's kind of, that's silly. See, I don't mind the you're right. I don't mind then the civic responsibility stuff that even under the spell he would be civic responsibility Batman. But you're going to follow her orders. You're not going to have to flip a coin. You're just going to jump. Mm-hmm. So that's silly. But but then he he has Batgirl basically karate chopping them to keep them from going over the side. So give him that much. He wasn't as much of a misogynist as the other two guys. Mm-hmm. He. He was okay with Batgirl using martial arts until obviously they told him no. So say that much about Stanley Ralph Ross. At least he he, he was okay with Batgirl doing something other than ballet kicks. 
Yeah, and you know we don't, or do we know when it was written the, that draft? Um, that's that's probably well in advance. Do you think he knew he was writing for Joan Collins at that time? He claims he did. I saw an interview once. I think it was in that thing that everyone always quotes, the Cinefantastique mm-hmm. uh, article from many, many moons ago. Now, he claims he did. Now, who knows if he did or didn't. I mean, you know, he, he could be an unreliable narrator, as we know. I mean, he claims that he claims that the aired, the aired uh, Catwoman two-parter with Eartha Kitt that there was a scene on, the, on a ferry, which, of course, there wasn't. Uh, Mm-hmm. Or that they were, you know, so, <laughs> but he claims he did. I mean, and I, I don't believe it was written for Eartha Kitt just because there's no singing scenes. Why would you have, why would you have Eartha Kitt if you're not going to have a singing scene? Right. Doesn't make any sense. Right. If you're going to bring in an Eartha Kitt or say even from those days a Julie London, you're going to have a singing scene. You're not going to waste having a great singer on and not have a singing scene. The whole reason you have, I don't know, if, I would assume the director or somebody else thought of it, because actually his original idea, Ross's original idea, Jimmy, was that she opened her mouth and nothing came out, which to me is stupid. It's even stupider than the emergency broadcast signal. Right, but, <laughs> well, I, you know, you could say that in sort of TV logic that they had to block it out, because if we heard it as viewers, then we'd be under her power. Well, believe it or not, you know, I know I'm getting into tangents, but, but maybe people people won't believe this. They actually, that was a thing in those days. People, pe- network executives worried about that stuff. Yeah, oh yeah. It's crazy, but like they, there's a thing like the original, I never haven't been able to get, I haven't seen it yet, but there was like a Marsha, it may have been written by somebody else. There's like dueling Marsha scripts out there. There was somebody else wrote a Marsha script. In fact, I think this is the one they may have they may have done in the comic, in the 66 comic, where she had a hypnotic chandelier. You mean Marsha, Queen of the and Diamonds? Marsha, Queen of Diamonds. Yes, mm-hmm. so I should have made that clear. But she, and they, there's a censor report where they say, uh, you know, to not focus the camera too much on it. Like, like somebody, you know, what, what, somebody at home was going to be hypnotized and send Carolyn Jones all his money. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, mean uh, no, but I'm sure they were leery or weary of, uh, that lawsuit. You know, or, I know it's, yeah. it's, it's, it was a thing in those days that they worried. I mean, uh, well, Hey, well, you know what? I guess they were right. Look, look at me. I'm still, under you're, Jones spell you're still under the spell. Yes. The three, so o- three octaves right, above but, high C did a number on you. Well, it was actually two. That, that, remember, three is the uh, antidote. But uh, uh, thanks for the correction. <laughs> so that's why you're the expert. Yes. The, uh, <laughs> and and but but you're right though. I think the other thing they couldn't have done also. I mean, at the end of so, well, two other things. I, two other points I should make about the outline, Jimmy. Are it was funny though. He forgot though. Then he forgot about Batgirl because in the climactic fight scene, I probably Horowitz writes in big letters. Where's Batgirl? He totally forgets. Yeah, in that outline to put in Batgirl. Because remember, again, this is early June. He's not even he's not even thinking Batgirl yet. I mean, he knows she's there. He's got her early in the story, but he's just it's not really ingrained in his mind yet. And then the other thing was that like this the this big Winnetka win was supposedly going to sweep Siren away. I mean, 
I've even seen that done with CGI in movies. And mm-hmm. even with CGI, it looks terrible. I can't imagine how, first of all, how much it would have cost, and secondly, how bad it would have looked in 1967 to try to pull that off. And you said, so this is roughly in June when Stanley Ralph Ross was writing this. So he's just knocking out scripts and um, without any concern. And, and Dozier comes back and says, well, hey, this, this isn't. Well, this, I, is, well this, is, this is where you pitch. This is where you pitch. Yeah, yeah. You pitch the character and, and the thing and saying, and again, if we take him at his word, you're saying, okay, you've, got, you've told me you want a script for Joan Collins. Here's my idea. Do you want me to go to script or not? And then basically they they probably told him in a memo, in a phone call that we don't have access to. We like the idea for the character, but, the, and, and you saw some of the notations on it, but basically what we've just, what you just said, Jimmy, too much money on the screen, uh, too many extras. You, you got to find a way to do this uh, in the studio. And, and, and like you said, hence, hence they basically cut right to the uh, grotto. Yeah. More of a, Definitely might have flew at least that budget in season one, possibly season two. Yeah, I mean, season one, I can at least see them at least looking for some stock footage. Mm-hmm. And I could see them. And we would have gotten the two episodes out of it. Yeah, and yeah, and, and you can, as they say, amortize it. And then also I could see at least a scene of, of maybe Joan outdoors laughing. Uh, you know, at, at at the non-existent stock footage that she's looking at. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, that's not impossible if you could somehow we, do. We that. could just have a uh, an old older lady and a Boy Scout point in that direction and say, "Hey, look at the wind blew that lady off the hill." <laughs> <laughs> Again, uh, you casual fans might not get that reference. <laughs> I'm sure that's a good laugh for some of you deep cut guys. Like, well, no, I, yeah, I mean, if you, well, hey, if you stuck around for season two, you know that, because I, I mean, and I was like, I remember watching, I'm like, again? <laughs> and it's like, they, I guess they thought that was so funny that, oh, we got to keep wheeling them out there. Right. Uh, it, the, we're ex- the fans are expecting it. We got to use them. And then uh, we'll bring this plane in, the siren plane in for a landing. And uh, JP, is there anything else you want to mention about the siren before we wrap up that discussion? Well, well, I would say, I would say again, I, I understand that the, the problems they were up against because, as I kind of alluded to before, Jimmy, let's face it, if, if she executes the plan the way she should, well, except for Batgirl, I mean, obviously being a woman and not and being immune to her, it, it's hard to defeat somebody that's got that many, that's got that kind of superpower. So they kind of painted themselves into a corner with, with a superpowered baddie. But I just think they, they could have done a better job with her. I, I just think that the, the episode again as you said it would have been nice to have a two-parter just let the episode breathe i mean Mm -hmm. she promised to uh ravage and pillage gotham city like nobody's ever ravaged and pillaged it before it would have been nice to see that actually happen that would have been nice to see but again in the third season that would have required actual actors and extras to have happened if you not or or the aforementioned older lady and boy scout pointing yeah, that too. Yeah, you know, but if she's not, yeah, and if she's not, yeah, look at that. Yeah, look at that. If she knocks over a jewelry store or what have have you, mm-hmm. I, I mean that that's going to, or she's got. I mean, how how about if she just she uh 
she gets a hold of the uh, dispatcher and has all, uh, well, not that they would be very effective, but uh, it wouldn't be very effective henchmen, I guess, if she had the whole Gotham City police force under, force under a spell. So I guess I guess I should uh, scotch that idea. It's not really a great. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no such thing as a bad idea. No such thing as a bad yeah, idea. Really, uh, skip that one. That's really, uh, uh, <laughs> that, that would lead back to what I was against before. That would be like one of those, those new more slow burns. Why can't I get good help? Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, you really don't want to bring those people on, those guys on board. That's uh, that's probably not a good idea. But I, I'm just saying that you, you have this great kind of comic book villainous, and and you kind of waste her, and you kind of waste Joan, and, and then you're going to give a you give a second a second try to Louis the Lilac, and you're giving three half hours to Olga. I mean, you've got these, I mean, there's a difference between a comic book villainous and a cartoon villainous. Gosh, I, let, me, let me politely disagree with the expert, JP. Uh, I don't think she was wasted at all. I thought she was a great character and, and well-utilized. Maybe her potential was wasted, if I may. Well, that, okay, that's the way to put it. Thanks. Yeah. That's the way to put it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the way to put it. I mean, it's just, I feel that there was more potential. Sure. I think she deserved a two-parter. And I certainly agree that I would have much rather seen her. And, and again, this is all retrospect. You know, they're prob- they've got to go with the big money name like uh, Uncle Milty. But I would have much rather enjoyed another episode, another treatment of the siren than Louis the Lilac. And or or maybe the siren and Egghead instead of the siren and that would, been, that would be an interesting team up. That would be an interesting team up. Yeah, to get him because then you could get him back to his or team her up with anybody. I mean, also you know it's interesting. You know, by the way, uh, and uh, both uh, Egghead and Siren have something in common because it was both written by. Stanley Ralph Ross, they both called uh, uh, Bruce Wayne a fop. So there you go. A fop? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, because Siren said he was he was a penniless fop when she took away. Although, again, let's face it. I mean, there was nobody there to notarize him signing over all of his possessions. So that's really not binding yet. Right, but, right. But if you remember Egghead when he said when he was going to put him – in that uh, machine, it was going to leave him an empty-headed pop. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to switch their intellects. That's you know the almost the only time I've ever heard that word outside of learning the word was when I interviewed Kevin Conroy, famously voices Batman on the animated series and the games. And if if there's a Batman voice in your head, it might be his. <laughs> right? Uh, he told me that's how he decided to play Bruce Wayne is as a fop. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So maybe he knew Stanley Ralph Ross. Well, <laughs> he comes across. Yeah, you know, again, I'm I'm going far afield here, but that's the way he. That's the way I think sometimes Bruce Wayne portrayed himself to try not to be thought of as Batman. Right. That yeah, that was his. That was his reason. Kevin's reasoning as well. That's a that, well. That's a good idea to try to deflect. And he referenced the Scarlet Pimpernel. When he was uh, in that same discussion, yeah, that makes uh, a lot a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. But to, to, the other thing I would also say about about the siren is that again, it just it's too bad that she didn't come along. 
I, I think she's a season one villain stuck in season three. It just would have been nice to see. I mean, I don't know if they would go. I mean, you could say she's too outlandish or powers are too outlandish for season one, but she just feels like season one because she's just very serious. She doesn't have a lot of yucks. Mm-hmm. And again, that's back to season one of I, I want to I unmask these guys. Mm-hmm. If I unmask them, I'll ruin them. That, that's very much a season one sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a, a, a more, I wouldn't say a, a better thought, thought out, but it's more thought out uh, mission. Yeah, and also that's the other thing. At least, at least she has a, it's not a great plan, but like I said, because she could have just called the, the bats on herself and had Batman in her power. That's, but I love that part, <laughs> yeah. But, but at least it's better than I'm going to rule the world by having this the the, the surfers or the hippies under my power. You know? Well, if yeah. <laughs> excellent point. Although I am a big fan of that episode, I mean, for various reasons, I'm a big fan of Surfs Up. But oh, I am too. Yeah. To me, that no, I, I know this is a tangent again, but but I think that is the one time, the, the not the one time, but the the time where they most nailed the comedy. You know, at least yeah, the of the I, ridiculousness of the comic books yes. of the time, yeah, yeah, truncated you know, it, hey, truncated into twenty four minutes of screen time. Yeah, if you're going to give me comedy, at least do it right, and yeah. that is so the, the 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 comedy of that, just the just the idea. Well, uh, well, I'll say this: I, I have said this on the. You may have heard. Uh, I guess I'll wrap up the the siren this way. Is I've always said, thank goodness. Uh, there's no uh, a siren experience and ability transferometer. Otherwise, mm. <laughs> you know, Joan would be in a lot of trouble. Well, that brings us to the end of another exciting episode of the Powcast. Until JP joins us again, you can follow him on Twitter at. J.P. Pelsman, that's at J-P-P-E-L-Z-M-A-N, or check out his sports coverage at Forbes.com. When we are allowed to go back outside again, please make sure you stop by the Hollywood Museum, located at the corner of Hollywood and Highland in Hollywood, California. Until then, you can stop by the website, thehollywoodmuseum.com. I wanted to say thanks again for your patience and support. We're all doing the best that we can during these trying and uncertain times, and I hope you are as well. We will be releasing episodes on a regular basis in the future, starting with a very special guest next time around. Here's a hint. When is a guest like a conundrum? Here's another hint. What do you call a seagull's painting? Follow us and say hi on the socials at RetroCoolNerd. Why not give our YouTube channel, Retro Cool Nerd, a shake? I bet there's some videos on there you'd like. Stop by RetroCoolNerd.com on your daily interweb travels, and feel free to drop me an email anytime. That address is Jimmy at RetroCoolNerd.com. The music samples today were from the Flying Horse Big Band and the Batman soundtrack by Nelson Riddle and Neil Hefty. Special guest voices include Grayson and Jimmy Lazinski and Scott Sebring. Episode 3 of the podcast has been written, recorded, and produced by me, Jimmy the Gent, 
in Wayne Study Studios for Saturday Morning Serial Productions. Tune in next time. Same POW channel, same POW cast. Are you ready to get out of here, Bert? To the Batmobile! Yes. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.